You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 65. This is the show where we break down the intersection between archaeology and technology and help your project go high tech. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. On today's show, we're talking about using tech in adverse conditions. With winter coming up, a lot of people might be dusting off their clipboards for the cold weather. We'll get into that and much more on this episode. Let's get to it. All right, welcome to the show, everyone. Uh, hi, Paul. How's it going? Pretty good. How are you doing, Chris? Pretty good. Pretty good. So, as I think I've alluded to on other shows, I can't remember if it was this podcast or not, but uh, winter is fast approaching. Um, I think the high here in Reno is like 50 degrees on Friday, and we're having routine low temperatures at night in the 30s. But as we're recording this, it's um, October 17th, so a little, little ways ago from when you're hearing this, but. Um, it's getting cold out, and that is an adverse weather condition, and we're going to talk about tech in adverse weather conditions. Uh, Paul, what's it doing in uh, in New York right now? You know, we had the weirdest fall. It's been summer-like weather up until two nights ago, and at 2.30 in the morning, it all changed. Our apartment faces out over the Hudson River, so there's nothing between mm-hmm. us and New Jersey. And 2.30 in the morning, bam, the whole house got woken up, the whole apartment, because uh, it was like a, a wall of bricks hit us, and then the wind started howling, Jeez. and it dropped a good 20 degrees so now it's cold nice nice fall came in with a with a bang with a roar literally yeah nice well that can be um pretty damaging sometimes for the for different technological things you might be using in the field and that's what we're going to talk about on this show is my my wish my initial like concept for the show was basically calling it winter tech like what do you do in the winter time as we're moving forward but as paul and i were taking notes uh, and I was talking to Paul uh, a few days ago about this. It, it was kind of broadened out into just tech in adverse conditions. You know, we might might focus on winter just a little bit because that's what's coming up for most people. But, I mean, people, you know, you pull out your iPad and people put cases around these things or any tablet you have. They put a case on it. They do all these things and they treat them like, you know, they they treat it like a precious little object and they don't want to take it anywhere and do anything with it. And in some cases, that's probably true. Don't take your iPad underwater without putting a case on it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that. But that level of security is uh, applicable at, in different degrees to lots of adverse conditions. So let's just talk about... Um, you know, what those adverse conditions are where you have to think about your technology just a little bit and think about uh, protecting it in some way, um, even if it's just, you know, physically shielding it from something, you know, you still have to protect it. But so let's talk about what those are. Just going down the list here uh, and then we'll talk about them uh, as we go along. You've got winter, which usually means cold. Uh, you've got summer, which usually means hot, but also means direct sunlight. But I'll talk about that later. You've got humidity issues, uh, which usually has two factors involved one just extreme heat and two um you know obviously moisture getting into places that it shouldn't and rain of course wind wind is a problem in uh some areas with some things and then of course underwater i had to put that as an adverse condition because there are of course underwater archaeologists out there and at some point we'll be talking about uh how do you use your tech in a in a zero or a low gravity um uh, zero atmosphere environment. It's called the moon. How do we use, I mean, there are 50 year old sites on the moon yeah. now, right? So, so we're going to have to record those at some point. <laughs> um, well, there's almost 50 year old sites. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I would definitely go up there. 
Um, Paul, can you think of anything else or, or have you had any experience with any of these? Because I know I know your recording environment is really more um, children or really yeah, the hazard so you're dealing uh, with. But, spilled uh, coffee, spilled <laughs> soda, uh, spilled water, dropped down the staircase, that sort of thing. Um, there are probably other things that have been spilled right. on them too that I don't want to know. But uh, no, as an archaeologist, yeah. you know, I broadened this out partially because I've never actually worked in winter conditions. I worked all over the Middle East, and uh, and we had to deal with desert and semi-desert. So I'm used to the the hot side of this equation, the hot and dry, but not the uh, not the cold, mm-hmm. and not particularly the wet either. Uh, as a Minnesotan, I do know a thing or two about winter in general, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Um, well, that's good, and and that's an interesting, uh, co- I guess. An interesting contrast to make uh, is in the fact that you know about summertime conditions and hot and dry and things like that. That's pretty typical from like an academic perspective, um, because a lot of times, obviously, they're going out into the field during the summer, not during the school year. But as as cultural resource management archaeologists, we're obviously in the mm-hmm. field all times of the year at any time in just about any weather condition. So, um, I mean, I've heard of people digging up in uh, I heard of a project that was going on in New York. Um, I think it was near Buffalo in the winter time and it was just something that had to get done it was an excavation and they had tents and like heaters for the ground and all kinds of stuff just to keep the ground from freezing while they were excavating uh trying to do these things so it's uh you know as a crm archaeologist i mean you could be expected to work in just about anything and you and your gear and yourself has to be expected to perform so yeah and you're typically working on a shorter schedule and it's not dictated by you it's dictated by whoever's hiring you Mm -hmm. um you know if you're on an academic project, you might have a month or two months somewhere within the two and a half, three months of summer. So there might be a little bit more wiggle room there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, if you're being hired to work for a week on a, uh, you know, shovel testing something, that's your week. And if the weather sucks, you've got to deal with it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I remember, I'll never forget. I don't know what I would have done in this environment. Well, I know what I would have done now, but God, we worked in Ohio one time where the high, the high for the whole time we were working there was like five degrees. And that was, Ugh. you know, that was for a brief period of time. And you, don't, of course, don't notice it when, when the high is only five. As you know, being in Minnesota, that, uh, I mean, you're you're bundled up at five, just like you're bundled up at like 15 or 20. So you don't notice when the when it goes over zero even usually. Um, but we were just, it was just so miserable and uh, digging in that environment in that rock hard clay. But anyway, oh, that must have been tough. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty crappy. So, how would we have coped in that in the digital age? Because we didn't have tablets on that project. That was pre iPad, and um, nobody had anything out there. And it was kind of pre smartphone, really. I mean, I didn't have, I didn't have an iPhone yet. I think they some tab- tablet, some you know, smartphone type things were starting to come out. But it wasn't really a consideration. The, the biggest thing people were using still was like the GPS and the Trimble and stuff like that. And those will fail if they get too cold. Um, so a lot of times you don't need the GPS or even the Trimble or something like that out 24 hours a day, you know, all the time, the whole time while you're working. So put it in the vehicle or put it in your backpack. Um, better yet, you've probably got bigger coats on and stuff like that. If you can put it in an inner pocket, and this is one of the things I have down in clothing, is lots of pockets for the wintertime. So if you can put it on like an inner pocket where it's closer to your body, then the tech will stay at a slightly warmer temperature for usage. Because these things will fail at low temperatures, and that should be listed uh, in their instruction manuals at what temperatures they will fail at. Uh, and there's a little bit of wiggle room with that, of course, because um, it will probably work at that temperature for a little while, but then uh, either slow down, you know, and, and a lot of that just applies, breaks down to physics, like batteries, 
simply don't work as well. They don't generate enough power. Electrons don't move as fast when it's cold. So, you know, it's <laughs> we don't either. So we should be able to relate. <laughs> yeah, the, um, I, I've seen this is totally uh, side, but uh, <laughs> skiing with some friends uh, a few years ago, we had our uh, our smartphones on us and they were in pockets in our jackets. And I had a iPhone five at the time and it worked fine for me the whole day that we were skiing. But, uh, but my friends both had sixes and uh, and they froze and they mm-hmm. stopped. They shut down, uh, you know, even though they were fairly close to our bodies, they weren't on inside pockets, but uh, but still just trying to use them yeah the iphone 6s couldn't and the iphone 5 could and then when i upgraded to a 6 and we went skiing the next year i had the exact same problem (laughs) i lost my phone that day too or the use of it rather Mm -hmm. yeah and i wonder if the part of that reason and this would be applicable to an ipad or any uh, sufficiently sized tablet as well is there's a lot more metal on there and that metal gets Mm. really cold you know on the bigger ones it doesn't have it doesn't. It's not full of battery, and the battery is not keeping it as warm as it probably could. Now, one of the things you can do is, of course, take one of those um, uh, one of those portable battery packs with you, and always have it plugged into the portable battery pack when you're not using it. Even if you don't need the charge, it'll keep the device warm because the simple act of charging the battery or keeping the battery charged will keep the mm-hmm. device internally warm, which is really what you need. If you think about a car in the wintertime that plugs in. Really, those those block heaters, they're not heating like the rest of your car. They're just heating the fluids inside the engine block to keep it warm. So when you go to crank that thing over, it's not just, you know, syrupy sludge in there. It's actually right. still fluid and you can crank it over. Same thing with your battery. You know, if you keep it internally warm, then your device should theoretically keep working. So that's one good, good way to do that. Um, Another good way to do it, of course, is to put a case on your device uh, and not just a, like a back case like a lot of people have on their smartphones, but like a full wraparound uh, case with a screen protector because that just helps insulate it from uh, from the cold a little bit more. Um, not much, but but a little bit more, you know, keeps that, that surface of it out from being out in the elements. Um, and of course, uh, a lot of problems people have with once you pull your tech out and it is working, and we're talking about uh, capacitive touch screens here mostly, which is what nearly all things are these days. Um, they're just the, uh, the the older screens were actually kind of a force touch sort of thing where you just touch it with anything and it'll work. Uh, but most yeah, screens are... Touch. Yeah, that's right. Resistive touch. But now they're all capacitive touch. And you can't just like touch it with a piece of clothing or something. You need... Uh, typically your finger, or famously when this first came out, uh, somebody used a hot dog, I think, to do it, But um, which is pretty gross. But really, you just sausages. need... <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> but really, you just need anything that, that has that uh, conductivity that the screen can sense. And that's where you see a lot of gloves coming out these days uh, and in the last few years with conductive fingers. And usually it's just your first finger, like your pointer finger and your thumb. Um, mm-hmm. Some of the more expensive ones will have all the fingers, acknowledging the fact that you know, you can put 10 fingers on an iPad. Uh, I don't know who's playing like the iPad piano or anything like that out in the wintertime in the, with their in gloves the on, but yeah, right. Um, but those, man, those you really got to try in the store, have your device with you because some of those gloves are real, real crappy. And also they don't work if your finger, if the end of your finger is not contacting the conductive part on the inside of the gloves, then it's not going to work. So if they just put a little bit of conductivity in like the tip of the glove where you can see the, the glove probably looks different, if the fingers and the gloves are a little bit too big for your hands or maybe you got short stubby fingers like I do and, and the glove has a little space in the end, then it's not going to work. You've got to tighten up the glove onto your fingers before it'll actually work, which is a real pain in the ass. You can't type like that. 
some of them have a little button too, kind of at the fingertip instead of uh, instead of the conductive thread. Yeah. So that, that silvery tip that most of them have, some of them have a little button mm-hmm. to make that contact. So you can feel it from the inside that you're making contact, but it's also right. maybe less natural than uh, than the 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 fabric conductive because mm-hmm. uh, you know you've got this little little nub pressing back at you in a way that's that's not normal. Uh, but it's right. it's another option if one doesn't work for you particularly. Take a look for a different style. Yeah. And, and these days the like hunting sections of mm-hmm. sports stores have really good gloves, you know, cause hunters need, um, whether they're bow hunters or, you know, using rifles or whatever, they need really good manual dexterity with their fingers. Mm-hmm. And as a byproduct, they've got really nice, solid, tight fitting gloves that actually keep your hands really warm. And a lot of these are coming out with the conductive fingertips. So you might have to spend, 20, 30, 40 bucks on a decent pair of gloves, um, even more if you're looking at serious winter winter conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that being said, you're, you're still going to be able to use your hands and they won't have frostbite. <laughs> so there's, how much is that worth to you? <laughs> um, you know, another way to do this, uh, before we talk about the really cool thing that's conductive thread, another way to do this is something that I just kind of fell into one time because I was trying to cobble two sets of gloves together because it got shockingly cold out one day. I had... These really thin, um, I guess they were, I think they were Under Armour gloves. They were really super thin gloves. They had the conductive fingers on the ends of them. I paid some good money for them because they were like that dry, that wicking material. And they were just really awesome. But when it got super, super cold out and windy here in Nevada one time, they just weren't, they just weren't cutting it for me. They were, they were too, they were letting too much air in. Well, I didn't have a set of like really thick winter gloves, but what I did have was a set of really nice uh, fingerless gloves that had, my fingers went through the the holes to make them fingerless, but then it also had this mitt that kind of went over the tips of my fingers so um, so I could have those covered while I wasn't doing anything. Well, I put those thin gloves on that had the conductivity, and then I put those mitted fingerless gloves over the top of those, and that kept my hands super warm when I didn't need to do anything, and I could just close it. And then when I needed to type, I could just open the mitt portion, and I still didn't have any skin exposed to the wind, which you'll get frostbite in a really real second, really quickly, yeah. Um, and I, I, I just, I just used the conductivity on the, the really thin gloves, but they were, my fingers weren't out long enough. Um, and it's really just the tips anyway. They weren't out long enough to be, um, to be in any danger. Yeah, for so. someone like me, that doesn't work. I've got uh, Raynaud's, so I've got terrible circulation in my fingers. Um, so when oh, I go geez. skiing, yeah. uh, they've got, I've always got to have mittens on, you know, cause I need to have as much mm-hmm. uh, mass altogether as possible. So if I want to use my phone yeah. when I'm skiing, out comes the phone, off comes the mitten. And I do whatever I've got to do really quickly and I <laughs> shove it all back <laughs> in, uh, just to, uh, to keep them yeah. from freezing up. So, you know, there's depending if, uh, I wouldn't recommend doing a lot of winter work if, uh, if you've got rain outs, but, uh, but mm-hmm. there are different ways of dealing with it if you do. Yeah, they got plenty of those gloves too. They have like a little pocket in them for putting those little mm-hmm. heaters in there, like the oh, little chemical okay. heaters. So, oh yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, so am I out here? I mean, you, you go from somewhat comfortable to just like shockingly uncomfortable mm-hmm. really fast out here in Nevada. I noticed in the winter and the wind, cause you're, you get out of the truck and you're, you're doing stuff and you're fine and you're comfortable and it, it doesn't seem like there's a, a period of time because you're working and you're not thinking about it. And you all of a sudden go from I'm okay to, I simply right. can't warm up. Like I'm just done. Like I can't, my fingers won't work. I can't warm up. I can't do anything. And you just gotta, well, especially if you've been working and you've built up a sweat and then that gets cold and then you're, oh, then yeah. you're in trouble. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. So, uh, one of the other things you can do, uh, if you've got a set of gloves that you like and they work with your fingers and they fit, but they don't have fingertips, um, that are conductive is just Google conductive thread. Um, you can get this in a bunch of different places and you can really just throw that stuff into a needle and then make your own little loops in the end of the glove and make your own conductive fingertips. I've heard, I've never done it. Uh, I'll just say that right off, but I have heard people having varying success in actually doing that. And I think it really just depends on your skill in, in sewing that stuff into the end of your fingertips and, and making sure that you have constant contact between the, the thread and the, um, and the ends of them. Yeah. So one thing I would probably do if I were going to do this, I wouldn't just put the thread in the fingertips. I would run a line all the way up the finger. So somewhere on my finger is actually con- connecting with that thread because that's all that it needs to make a, a chemical uh, uh, electrical connection is somewhere on your hand your skin needs to touch that thread that part of the thread that's also at the end of the finger touching the screen as long as that's happening then you're typing on the screen and that should be okay so all right uh we are just about at the end of this uh, segment um but i think I, you know, we might as well stick on to uh, stay on clothing here just a little bit and some of the other kind of accessories, I guess, um, just for a second. Um, I, I can't say enough about uh, I can't say enough about like proper tech management. Actually, a lot of people will just leave their stuff out. And, and like I mentioned with the phone, like we mentioned earlier, same thing with iPads and even other things. Take that thing when you're not using it and don't set it on the ground. Don't set it with your other stuff if it's super, super cold out. Put it in uh, an inner pocket. Put it in, you know, a pocket of your vest or something like that. Put it in your backpack, for Christ's sake. Put it in something where it's out of the wind, it's out of the direct cold, and and just be conscious about thinking about that. You know, that's really all you have to do is just be conscious of it. If, you, if you're not thinking about it, then, you know, it's like when we think about our clipboards. You, you wouldn't set down your clipboard full of paper in a windy condition. You're going to set it down so, you know, you've got a strap on the bottom of your stuff or something like that. Mm-hmm. We're used to thinking that way. Now we just have to think slightly differently with our, um, with our tech. So, all right. Well, I think uh, that'll be the end of this section. We'll come back and talk about some other things that you can do and some other alternatives. And uh, and then, of course, the last segment will be our app of the day. Back in a second. Hey, podcast fans, check out the ARC 365 podcast at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash ARC 365. That's A-R-C-H 365 for your daily dose of archaeology. Each episode is less than 15 minutes long, and we have some great guests recording about awesome archaeology. We also try to throw in some definitions and basic archaeological information. So check out the 365 Days of Archaeology podcast only in 2017 at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash ARC 365 today. Find us also on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Music by typing ARC365 into the search. Now back to the show. All right, welcome back. This is the Archaeotech Podcast. Right now we're talking about tech in adverse conditions. Uh, Chris, uh, a few minutes ago you mentioned uh, the importance of cases. And I was wondering if there were particular cases that you've used that you like, things that you look for when you're buying cases, particularly for your uh, for your iPads, but I guess also for phones and any other equipment too. You know, I used to use the OtterBox line of cases uh, mm-hmm. exclusively. Uh, I had that. I had an OtterBox case for my first iPad. Had OtterBox for my first few phones that I had, and and I really liked them. Um, OtterBox had a real problem, probably about five years ago, with the uh, kind of silicone 
wrapping that went around the plastic hard shell case that you put on your phone in that the silicone would get real loose and weird and it would just like, I don't know, there would be gaps in it. It would start to kind of fall off. It was like, what the hell's going on here? They've since corrected all that and OtterBox is way better. But as they were correcting that, I started exploring LifeProof cases and LifeProof is amazing. LifeProof, they're just like really slim. I mean, you take a, a big old phone, like I've got the 7 Plus here, and you put a LifeProof case on it. I mean, it's already a big phone. You put a case on it that's wrap around completely and submergible in the water, uh, and that makes it an even bigger phone to put in your pocket. But LifeProof does a pretty good job of keeping that nice and tight and keeping that on there. It's it's good insulation for the phone. Um, the screen protector is good that's on it. Um, they have their LifeProof Nude series too, which actually doesn't have a screen protector, but it's got a good enough seal around the edge of your um, smartphone screen that you can use your screen without a screen protector on it, but it's still waterproof, um, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. Is there anything that you look different uh, look for differently in uh, in cases if you know you're going out in wintertime, say, versus any other time of the year? Not really, because these um, these cases seem to be good in all seasons. Like the LifeProof ones I have on my iPads now are really great for just about any time of the year. They're, they're really awesome for summertime. Um, I don't. I thought occasionally that they would overheat the iPhone mm-hmm. uh, or the, the tablet, actually, for the summertime because there's zero ventilation on it. And I think that's probably happening to some degree. But if you do some of the... Some of the, uh, I guess, orientation type stuff, like the way you the way you situate yourself while you're recording and, and keep your tablet out of the sunlight, because the sunlight, uh, the UV, we've talked about this before, interacts with the glass and just heats it up. It can actually do that in the wintertime, too. It can be 30 degrees out, and your iPhone, your your tablet will overtemp if you leave it in a direct sunlight, especially here at high altitudes mm-hmm. at four, five, 6,000 feet where the UV radiation is stronger. Um, if you leave your screen out in the sunlight, yeah, it will over-temp. It's not really over-temping, but that's the indication it's getting. Yeah, it's like <laughs> and, when you're going on your dashboard off. of your car. Because it's got yeah, a big exactly. glass screen right on the front. Exactly, exactly. So um, so I that's what I like the LifeProof case for, is I don't need to switch that case when I go into a different weather situation. It seems to work all around best for everything. Now, something people should know, one of the reasons I think OtterBox's cases got better is one of those companies bought the other, uh, but they maintained uh, separate lo- product lines, but they're now the same company, <laughs> <laughs> LifeProof and OtterBox. As of a couple years ago, they're now the same company. And I don't know if this is another reason for it or not, but LifeProof actually stopped selling some of their cases for the iPads. They just stopped providing them. And, and we actually had to look for another case manufacturer for the iPad 4, the iPad Mini 4. I think personally that they thought the Mini was going to be discontinued as a product line, which still might be the case. Apple hasn't updated it in two years. There hasn't been a new iPad Mini, and there's nothing on for this year either so who knows um they may have just been you know i don't i guess uh looking out for themselves on that one but one of the problems with those life proof and um most of the autobox cases is nine times out of ten for the ipad size of case all you can get is black uh all you can get is like the the dark black with maybe like a gray plastic or something like that you might be able to get a black and dark gray or something um black is a problem if you're working in the heat if you're working in the sun Exactly, exactly. And it's also a problem for visibility, yeah, which is, you know, which yeah. I, I was telling you at, at break there that uh, colors for me really are very important in the, in the equipment. And I found this out as a surveyor in uh, in Jordan and that all the equipment that we'd buy was high visibility yellow or high visibility orange. And for whatever reason, you put that stuff down in the sand in Petra 
and it would just disappear. One year we went out in the field, we had some handheld, some little walkie-talkies, uh, consumer-grade ones, whatever, just to see if they'd work. And for whatever reason, one of them was blue in the box of yellow ones. The yellow ones would go missing yeah. instantly. The blue one would always stand out against everything. So I always wonder about uh, visibility with, with the equipment, especially if you're dealing with expensive equipment like tablets or like surveying equipment, GPSs and the like. If you can mm -hmm. find something that's a good contrasting color for the environment you're working in, that's pretty important in my book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, high-vis orange has always been a, a favorite out here. Um, it just you know shows up really well. My favorite flagging tape, which honestly I would put this on my iPads if they sold it, yeah. is hot pink. I mean, that really bright pink, you can see that flagging tape from miles away, <laughs> waving in the wind. And I'm thinking if I, I mean, sure, people might have an issue with a hot pink iPad in the field, but screw it. If I can see it and I don't have to hunt for it around the site because I set it down. I mean, as serum archaeologists, we've all been on a, a, like a bigger site, just surveying and flagging stuff. And you set down your backpack and maybe it's a lot of tall sagebrush or something like that, or you're in a forest or something. I've searched longer for my backpack than I have for uh, artifacts before. I mean, just like, where right. the hell did I drop that thing? Because um, it just blends right in. Well, especially if you're buying equipment at hunting stores and the like. A lot of that's going to be camouflaged anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, not, not no. really the best thing for One it. One thing I always um, wonder about. Uh, and sorry, you know, another thing that I always think about with the colors is that, you know, every time I open up my web browser to Amazon, they show me ads for the Kindle Fires. And there's that whole line of ones uh, mm -hmm. for children. And they come in cases and they're bright colors and such. And I think that, you know, if I were doing a project and I could support the software I had to run on one of those at a hundred bucks a pop, I would give that some serious consideration because, you know, they're, they're, they're already nice. brightly colored and somewhat more bulletproof than, uh, than a regular Kindle Fire just because it's being marketed for kids. Yeah, and a hundred bucks a piece, you could probably just donate to kids when you're exactly. done and buy new ones for the next project. Yeah, if you if you do happen to drop that one and break it because there's no front screen protector, or you leave it someplace, um, you know, mm -hmm. you're you're out. But it's not it's not a deal breaker. It's it's different than losing your brand new iPad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one thing that's making me think of color too. Um, we're gonna jump our list just a little bit because I think it fits. Mm. Is polarized sunglasses um, and different sunglasses entirely. Uh, there are sunglasses out there, like you heard of blue blockers and things like that, that can actually affect your um, your actual vision, you know, and the way that you see the world and the color that you see the world in, which can be a huge problem if you're trying to describe or find things that are contrasting in the environment. There are some sunglasses out there that will make practically everything just wash out into the same couple shades of colors. And, uh, and depending on how your eyes work, too, some people might react to those differently. And then also uh, polarized sunglasses. Uh, I had... What was it? I grabbed somebody's iPad one time and they had a the knockoff case manufacturer on there. It wasn't one of the big major ones. They paid, you know, one of those ones you pay like $20 for on Amazon or something. And uh, I couldn't see their iPad screen at all because the iPad, the screen manufacturer, there was something in the screen protector on it that was causing a, a reverse <laughs> polarization from the polarizing effect that the glass screen naturally has. So... Like, for example, when I look at my iPad with my Ray-Ban polarized sunglasses, um, I can look at it in landscape view, but if I go to portrait view, it disappears because you go 90 mm -hmm. degrees out of phase from the polarization on your sunglasses, and it goes black. The screen literally goes black, and that's mm -hmm. how polarization works. That's how they keep the sun, that UV radiation out of your eyes. Your lenses are polarized in an angle that normally people's heads are up and the sun is coming down into it. So that UV radiation is blocked by that polarization. But if you were to tilt your head sideways, your sunglasses are no longer polarized, but we don't typically walk like that. 
film photographers used to use that um, with, um, I used to have one of these as a linear polarizing filter for my camera, for my, for my SLR. Yeah. And you could turn it one way and the clouds in the sky would not, you know, they just disappear into the sky. You turn it another way, the clouds would jump out at you. Yeah. you know, so you could use it to, to highlight different things. This is back nice. in the film days before we could really edit the, uh, the, the, the output of our, of our cameras very easily. <laughs> Not like nowadays. So I don't know if people are still yeah. using polarizing filters like that, but it, it can be useful. It can be useful, um, but like I said, you got to watch for it when you have yeah. a, a case or something on your device, and it's summertime, and you're using sunglasses or whatever. Because the uh, that one case that 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 person's iPad that I used for a minute, I couldn't see anything because the, like I said, the the screen was they were they were they were hitting both polarized. If you were wearing unpolarized sunglasses, you could see it, but if you had polarized lenses on, they were both they were covering both polarization mm-hmm. angles, mm-hmm. so I couldn't see anything, <laughs> which is crazy. Um, all right, so uh, one thing that we did mention in the first section just briefly as a method of warming your device was uh, battery, you know, having it plug into an external battery, which we've talked about on this show before. Uh, but I want to bring it up again in the context of this show just to recognize that um, everything from, I mean, batteries are really particular things, just like electronics. They have a sweet spot for temperature operating range. You get above that or you get below that and you decrease their efficiency or you risk damaging the battery itself. So not only the battery inside the device, but any external batteries you might have as well. Um, so in any condition for weather, you probably always want to have just because it's easy to have and it doesn't cost you much and it's nice to just put it in your backpack and have it, but have some sort of external rugged battery. Um, just keep in mind that if you don't buy like a rugged one with sealed up ports or anything like that, that you're going to have to put it in something because if your backpack gets wet or something like that and those ports get wet, you'll probably just destroy that battery real super quick. So, um, But like I said in the first segment, it can be also used to warm up your device too if you just keep it plugged in uh, and keep it keep it going. Um, another thing that uh, in the line of cases, going back to those a little bit, that will help keep it clean is um, keeping... Uh, keeping lenses clean. Now, a lot of your newer cases these days, they won't actually cover the lenses on the backs of your devices. Some of the older ones did, which was a real bad idea, they realized. Um, and I would always punch that little lens cover out from the outer box once. But now they more, they mostly come with the lenses completely exposed because people are taking really good photography, really good pictures with their tablets and their smartphones. Uh, and they don't want that impeded by some sort of case on there that you know, could either damage the lens or just cause a, you know, an unwanted filter, basically. Um, so, yeah, uh, looking out for condensation in your lenses, um, not really a big deal with, uh, like, inside of the lenses on a smartphone and a tablet, but on the outside for sure. A lot of people, I've seen them, I've done it myself, where you pull out the camera and you go to take a picture and you don't, you can't really see it on the screen that well for some reason, but then you go look at the picture later and you're like, man, that lens was dirty. And you don't even realize it because it's on the back and it's not like a older mm-hmm. camera lens where it comes out or something like that. Like on the screen in the sun so you don't have uh, the full range of colors and contrast. Oh my God. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You're just kind of hoping for the best really. <laughs> um, so always have like a little a little lens thing or something, and if you're going to take a series of pictures, you know, go in there and wipe it off a little bit. Breathe on a little bit. It's still just a lens. You don't want to ground some dirt into it, but, you know, breathe on a little bit maybe and and uh, wipe that off. Are you still bringing like uh, SLR cameras in the field, or are you just relying entirely on the ones on the devices nowadays? I, I'm mostly relying on the ones on the devices because the agencies aren't requiring any more than that. But there are some caveats to that because some people still require black and white film for uh, structure photography, really? uh, for architectural photography. Yeah, oh. it's still because of the archivability of it. Oh, of course. 
Um, yeah, so they're still requiring that. And if you are taking an SLR out there, yeah, you've got to worry about dust in your mechanical operating, like um, you know, like the operation of your focus ring and stuff like that. So yeah, and double that if you're uh, if you're actually changing lenses when you're in the field. Oh yeah, I mean when you were working in the Middle East, um, or no, yeah, when you were yeah when you were working over there, I mean it was all SLRs, I'd imagine, or not yeah, SLRs, but or yeah, DSLRs. yeah, all, uh, no, it was before DSLRs. We we're still shooting oh, yeah. film. So I would typically take two camera bodies with me in the field, a bunch of lenses, but I wouldn't change them in the field. I'd change them before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so one would be loaded up with color, um, with color slide film, and the other would be with black and white. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's what we had to shoot with and wouldn't change, the, like I said, wouldn't change the lenses in the field uh, just because of the dust. And every now yeah. and then we'd have to get everything and, you know, toss them into plastic bags because a dust storm would blow up. And, uh, you know, and that, that fine desert dust gets into everything and, you know, oh, yeah. at the end of a field season, none of your zippers work. And a lot <laughs> of the things with knobs and rings and such make awful grinding noise when you move them. So, mm-hmm. you know, so a big part of what we had to do actually in taking care of our tech, and I'm sure it's still applicable, even though there's fewer moving parts nowadays is, uh, is what do you do after the field? How do you maintain your equipment? Yeah, and that's incredibly important. And depending on the environment you're working in, um, you really should be taking things apart that you can uh, safely do. Uh, even like uh, on tablets and smartphones, take your case off at the end of a 10-day session and you know clean it out because these things, they say they're completely impenetrable sometimes, but stuff managed to find a way in, uh, especially that fine dust like you're talking about. And as it gets in there, it might not be causing any immediate damage, but it could be slowly grinding its way at damaging something maybe on your screen or something like that. Um, so you got to watch that. And plus blowing out your, um, even if you just use your breath or a can of compressed air, but you got to be careful, uh, blowing out your portholes on like your phones and your tablets and stuff like that to make sure that you're not getting anything ground into those, um, those fine little tabs in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I just had a problem on vacation where I didn't even know what happened. I got some, some minor salt spray from when we went out on a boat yeah. into the bottom of my iPhone 7 Plus. And I actually took this thing underwater one time accidentally. It was in the shorts pocket when I went swimming. <laughs> and it was and it was underwater for like four minutes. And before I realized it, I just pulled it out and nothing ever happened. It was fine. Um, they say it's water resistant. It's not supposed to be waterproof, uh, but it was fine in that circumstance. But three seconds of salt spray on the bottom port here, and now my force touch doesn't work. My screen is mostly broken, and my button stopped working a little bit too. Um, I managed to restore a lot of the functionality just through some software restores and cleaning it up a little mm-hmm. bit. But luckily, I'm replacing this phone in like a week and a half uh, because it's totally toast from a little bit of salt spray because salt is electrically conductive. So it got on the little power port down there and just played havoc with everything. Water itself won't necessarily do it, but you throw salt in the mix and it's all over with. Well, that actually, uh, here's a little bit of a maintenance tip for people. If you ever do spill something on your laptop, unplug it Mm -hmm. right away. If you can remove the battery, unplug the battery, shut the thing down as quickly as you can, and then don't touch it for Mm -hmm. at least three days. Damp it (laughs) off. Again, this happens to us at school all the time. And, (laughs) you know, once a month, there's some kid that says, well, I spilled some water on it and it worked. And then it stopped working three days later. It's like, well, yeah, because it took that long, but the water's conductive, especially if they do something like coffee or soda. Um, Mm. And yeah, after a little bit, it's going to ruin it. So if you do spill something on it, just shut everything down, get, you know, power it off in every way possible and then let it dry. Be patient about it and and let it sit for at minimum three days. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And that's good advice for um, for all electronics. I mean, they're the, most of the things that the, the, the biggest thing that will ruin a piece of electronics that gets wet, whether it's from humidity or water, is that water causing a connection mm-hmm. between things that shouldn't have a connection. And if you simply just let it dry out, and I've actually heard, I haven't done any research on this, I've heard that the putting it in rice thing is actually not good. Um, yeah, it doesn't actually work, no. It doesn't actually work, and then it puts a lot of fine rice dust inside your device <laughs> if you're, like, mm-hmm. putting it in a bowl of rice. So just let if it sit. If you do feel the need to put it in something and you have a lot of those uh, those silica gel packets, yeah, you could put yeah. it in a jar with silica gel packets. That will work. Yeah. I've never tried it myself, but I've uh, people have told me it makes and I sense. Them. Yeah, it makes sense totally. And those are sealed up; they still they still suck in moisture, but they're sealed up because obviously that little silica, fine silica, will get all over the place as well. Mm-hmm. So, all right, well, we're just about done with this segment. Um, let's jump ahead a little bit here, Paul. What do you do when all your tech stops working? And that's weather related. It's it's temperature related. It's something like that. You know, what do you do when it's uh, when it just all stops? What do you think? Well, I guess it really depends on how long you expect to be in the field. I mean, is it just, is it a blip? Are you dealing with, uh, with the rainstorm that's moving through? Uh, have, has everything overheated and you're not going to be able to run it? Or are you going to be able to run it again in an hour if you let everything cool down? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's very dependent on, uh, on what's going on. It also depends on how reliant you are on that, that particular piece of tech. I mean, are you going to be able to, uh, your tablet has stopped working. Are you going to be able to continue recording on paper? Mm-hmm. Uh, depends on the project. I mean, it does imply then a certain amount of, uh, of work afterwards. Uh, but I would think that for most projects, if you have, uh, if you have the forms that you need in paper form, as well as in, uh, as well as in electronic form, you might at least have a backup plan then mm-hmm. for when things all stop working as expected. Uh, have you ever had to stop in the middle of a project or sooner than you expected because of the weather? Oh, yeah, all the time. Um, and a lot of times it's been because weather was moving in and getting worse and we were afraid of being able to get out of where we were. Uh, yeah, or, course, yeah. or you know, if we're walking or something like that and we're a long ways from the truck and we see a system coming in or it's just getting too, the weather's just getting too bad and we need to be able to actually make it to our vehicle to get out. Yeah, we've had to, we've had to, um, to cut out a lot of times, but... You know, I, I agree with what you're saying, too. You know, you got to see what your remaining day is. And I, something I was thinking about while you were talking about switching to paper, um, you have to really consider for yourself, like, if it's 9 o'clock in the morning and you're switching to paper, um, that probably is better to just go home. Because if you're going to record yeah. three, or more, four, three or four more sites for the day, you're creating 12 to 16 hours more work for yourself in the back office, where if you just went home, then you're you're not... You're losing some work, but you're not creating more work for yourself. I think it's actually costing you less if you just go home um, and say this isn't going to work. And and also, I see I see tech failing for weather reasons, and usually it's temperature reasons, whether it's too low or too hot. I see that as kind of a canary in the coal mine sort of thing. We're a little bit too macho out in the field, and we're like, oh, let's just yeah, keep on definitely. going. And yeah, when it's all clipboards and pencils. There's nothing telling us it's too hot out here. We're ignoring our bodies. We're, we're, our crew chiefs are saying, let's do another mile. Let's do this. Let's do that. And we're like, okay, okay, okay. But all your freaking electronics are dying. These things are built to tolerances to work within normal operating, normal human operating temperatures. So you can use them in most conditions. When your tech starts to fail, maybe you got to look at that and say, hey, maybe it's too hot or too damn cold for us to be out here too if the tech has given up. <laughs> Yeah, you know it's going to be a day in the lab now, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. 
There's always something else you can do. Uh, if you're I'm out on always, survey, definitely. yeah, you can. If, if you're out on survey, you can just go somewhere else and just keep walking and doing some more survey, record your sites later, something like that. If you're on an excavation, you know, maybe you can do some gear maintenance. Maybe you can do some other stuff that doesn't require you to fill out level forms. I don't know. Clear out another section. Do some, you know, try to figure out or always have a back plan for some things you can do to, uh, to make up for that. So, all right. Back Anything to, else? Yeah. No, sounds like back to that, uh, the other episode where we were talking about uh, planning, 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 you know, what to do <laughs> yeah. when your tech fails. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, yeah, think of it as a, I, I like the canary in a coal mine analogy. Your tech starts to fail, start to start to look at your environment and say, should I be here? Yeah, I think that's a good decision. Uh, that's uh, good advice. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for the regular part of the show. Come back in just a minute for the app of the day segment. This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high-quality downloads of each show and a discount at our future online store and access to show hosts on a members-only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. All right, we're back for the uh, Archaeotech podcast, episode 65, and this is our app of the day segment. And today we're going to cover um, a couple different apps. And we'll start with mine. And mine is just press record. And I looked up in, in our system here. And if you haven't gone over to arcpodnet.com forward slash archaeotech and use the search field on the right, I actually use that search field uh, today to see if I'd talked about this app before. And it turns out I did. And I'll link to that in the show notes. It was on an Internet of Things episode, episode 26. But it wasn't an app of the day um, segment. It was just in the regular uh, the regular segment. And so I only talked about it briefly. But I want to talk about Just Press Record a little more because it's really applicable to uh, the winter tech problem and the summer tech problem and other things like that. Because one of the things that you can do to uh, interact with your technology a little better is to automate some things to where you don't need to um, you don't need to hit as many buttons. And one of the ways to do that, uh, if you say it gets too cold or too windy or something, your, your stuff is still working, but you just don't want to type right now. You want, you're willing to just transcribe and type later. Um, you can just record it. And there's an app for iOS called Just Press Record. It's on Apple Watch and all the mobile devices. Um, and I think they even have a computer one, but I'm not sure what you'd use that for. But either way, you can, it's it's a simple big red button that you just hit record on and it just simply starts recording your voice. And then once you get within cell service, if you're not already, uh, if it's a if it's a really long recording, it won't do transcription. Uh, you can force transcription, I think, but it will try to transcribe what you said uh, uh, on definitely the the several minute long one. So if you're just recording feature descriptions or something like that, it will actually transcribe those and you can copy and paste that into a document, reformat it, and you're done. Um, so it's a really good way. Uh, like I have it on my Apple Watch and it's in one of my complications, they call it. It's just a button in the upper right-hand port corner of the screen. And if I want to record something real fast, I just, bam, hit that. It goes. It doesn't take me to another app where I have to hit record. It doesn't do anything. It just opens the app and instantly starts recording. And it's the same way on the phone. And I love that because it's super fast. Usually I want to use it when I'm in the car and I have a thought or have an idea or something I want to think about later. I'm not going to sit there and type that out. And I'm not going to use Siri to do it. We all know how well that works. So I'm just going to hit just press record. 
and then record what I need to do. Um, and then the other cool thing about that is uh, it connects via iCloud to your entire iCloud account. So once you're done with your recording, it instantly uploads to your iCloud account. So it's available everywhere that you have access to that iCloud account. So if you had like a company iCloud account, let's say, it would upload to the company iCloud account and somebody in the office could even you know, review that recording right now, review the transcription and then, you know, do some stuff with that. Uh, and it's a nice way to maybe send stuff back and forth or whatever, but it's a good way to record stuff really fast, really easily with no complications, no file names, no nothing like that. And just get right into it. And you don't have to pull your fingers out of your gloves for too long. If it's super cold to get it going. Um, you can probably start it, um, I've actually pushed it with my nose before when I had gloves on, like just hit the upper left-hand corner of my watch <laughs> with my nose and then started the recording. Um, and then because I can just push one of the buttons on the side to stop the recording and, and make it go away. So it's uh, it's a really handy uh, tool for any weather condition, but I think I think it's going to be really handy uh, for the wintertime and things like that and winter recording and uh, when you don't want to touch too much stuff, but you still want to be able to record, especially if you have an Apple Watch. Like I said, it works on the phone and it works on tablet. But it's really, really fun on an Apple Watch. I think it's kind of designed for that, really. Um, it came out before the Apple Watch did, but when the Apple Watch came out, they're like, they like hit their stride with it. So that's uh, it's a really simple, really simple app of the day segment, but it's really effective, too, and, uh, and I think incredibly useful. What do you think about Paul? Yeah, it sounds pretty good. Uh, it sounds like I'd like to take a look at it because it does sound like a really streamlined, straightforward little uh, little utility. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what I'm going to talk about today is kind of in the same vein. It doesn't have any particular application for adverse weather conditions, but um, but it's a one-trick pony that does what it does very simply and very well. And that program is called Scannable. Uh, it's available on iOS and on Android. It's made by Evernote, and it integrates with Evernote really nicely. And what it is is a little camera app. You launch it. Uh, say you have a piece of paper, a receipt, a form, uh, notes that you've taken. You just lay it down on the table, launch the app, aim it at the uh, at the page. It recognizes the boundaries, snaps a picture, and then gives you the option to uh, to do a little bit of image editing if you need to to bump up the contrast, uh, delete it if it didn't take a good picture, uh, and then upload it either directly into your Evernote or uh, send it via email, save it to your camera roll, uh, probably text it. I'm not sure how many millions of different ways you can get it out of Scannable, but uh, it integrates so nicely with Evernote, which of course isn't surprising because it's made by them. Uh, I use it very heavily. I always recommend this particular program when people come to me with a, a new phone and saying, hey, uh, what kind of an app do you really recommend I use? I say, you know, take a look at this one because it can make a lot of things that you otherwise wouldn't do or would want to do but haven't because it'd be a little cumbersome to uh, break out a flatbed scanner, for example. Uh, You just quickly take a picture. If you have multi-page documents, it assembles them into a multi-page PDF. If it takes a picture of a page and it doesn't crop it properly. You can go back in and uh, it's got a really cool like loop view to it. So it'll nice. show you the bounding box of the uh, of the page and you can drag each corner around to fit where the, uh, the actual corners of the page are. It will rectify the image. So if you've taken it at an angle, uh, it squares it off for you. Uh, really, really handy. I use it, uh, especially, I use it in a number of different ways, but mostly I like taking, when I go to a lecture, I like taking notes on paper. Um, 
too many years of schooling before we had tablets and the like. Uh, and though I type quickly enough, my, my notes are bits of scribbles and uh, diagrams and arrows and all sorts of weirdness that only I can read. Uh, but I want to keep it in an electronic form because I don't particularly like paper except for you know, taking the notes initially. So uh, at the end of a lecture, I'll just come back, set, the, uh, set my lecture notes out on the desk, fire up Scannable, take a picture, load it up into Evernote where I have one of my notebooks is called Lectures and that's where it all is. I do the same with the AIA nice. board meeting notes and uh, occasionally with uh, with receipts, definitely use it when there's some sort of legal document that I need. Um, again, much easier than breaking out a flatbed scanner, uh, scanning it into the uh, into my laptop and then and uploading it like that. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, and I actually didn't know that Evernote had this as a standalone application. So if you don't want an Evernote account, or if you don't want um, you know to deal with Evernote for some reason or another, you're just not into it. But you want a good document scanner. This seems like a great idea. I have never used Scannable, but I have because I use Evernote pretty extensively, and I scan a lot of stuff with Evernote, and it just like Paul said, it, all the same features are there. And one thing I noticed that it does if you're scanning it right into Evernote, and I'm not sure if Scannable does this on its own or it needs another application like like Evernote specifically to make this work, but it will OCR your documents in most cases too, which means it will recognize the text on there and that text on the document that you just scanned becomes searchable um, and it becomes selectable as well if you're going to copy and paste it. And it's not the best for like older documents. Yeah, which is wonderful when you've got a form or a receipt or something. doesn't work oh, yeah. at all with my handwriting. But I'm okay <laughs> with that. Yeah, of course not. Yeah, mine either. So, um, but yeah, it uh, it looks like it works great, and it looks like it it says um, it says on the App Store thing here that there's a ScanSnap um, Evernote edition scanner, multi-page documents, and it looks like Scannable work with that as well. Um, I'm not sure if it links to that, and then uh, the stuff can scan into Scannable, and then through Scannable you can share it out and bring it wherever you need to go. Um, I'm not sure about that, but you know, another option for you. So seems like a pretty cool tool. Yeah, it's good to have something options. like this. Yeah, something like this, I think a document scanner is actually a really good thing to have in the field from a smartphone standpoint because uh, we can relate this to weather because I don't know how many times I've seen somebody's clipboard that they set on the ground be totally destroyed by a dust devil that went by, opened the clipboard, oh. and took all the paper and scattered it about the desert. So if you if you take, you know, most crew chiefs, if you're working with paper, you'll distribute the forms or your crew will already have the forms. You'll record a site. At the end of recording the site... Depending on how your crew chief operates, some will just say, keep those forms. But most crew chiefs, I used to do this too, I would say, give me all your forms. I would paperclip those together and then put those on the left side of my clipboard, whereas on the right side, I had all my blank forms. So then we'd you know, file those when we got home. But quickly snapping a picture of each one of those into your phone is probably a really solid idea. <laughs> well, there you go. There's, just in there's case. There's the use case for the adverse <laughs> weather. Uh, your equipment has started to die. You're not at a good place to stop, but you know you've got to stop soon. You switch to paper, right. finish up what you're doing, snap it into uh, Scannable so you can upload it to Evernote as soon as possible. You've got now an electron, you've got a paper copy, a digitized copy of that paper, and, mm -hmm. uh, and you can go home feeling reasonably secure that you've captured what you needed to. 
Yeah, and if you're in cell service when you do that, then you've also satisfied a lot of the um, like archival requirements of data, which means it's now saved off-site in cloud servers. It's now somewhere else. So you don't have to worry about, you know, okay, sure, you just scanned all this stuff, but then you set your phone on your clipboard and both of them fell into a mine shaft. <laughs> um, sure, that sucks, but it's happened. It sucks, but now all your documents are also in the cloud and you have access to them and you didn't lose all that information from recording that site. So... Yeah, sounds really good. See, we were related it right back. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Okay, well, um, we do have some other ideas for uh, for podcasts on this. There's always stuff we can talk about. But as usual, if you've got anything you want us to talk about or discuss or you have any questions, send an email off to chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. You can comment on this episode or any of the episodes um, on Facebook or wherever you found it. Um, you can also send us a tweet. Um, I'm at arcpodnet or at archaeowebby, A-R-C-H-E-O. And Paul, what's your Twitter handle? Lugal, L-U-G-A-L. So at Lugal. There you go. So feel free to tweet us or message us or do whatever you got to do and let us know what you think about these episodes and if you have any suggestions for future episodes. So I think with that, um, we'll hope Paul can stay warm in this uh, windy, sudden fall in New York. Yeah, it's okay. It's just New York. It's not Minnesota. (laughs) Minnesota. I may get out a winter jacket. (laughs) Nice. Nice. (laughs) All right. Sounds good. Well, thanks a lot, Paul. Uh, Thanks, Chris. And we'll see you guys next week. That's it for another episode of the Archaeotech Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeotech. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for this episode. You can also email us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag archaeotech or tag at archpodnet in your tweet. Please share the link to this show wherever you saw it. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.